Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Science history is a bit of an odd duck. It's rarely heroic or exciting in the same sorts of ways that political or military history are, but that doesn't stop historians from trying to insert it into that narrative structure as often as possible. Once in a while, however, a person comes along who does both, makes a real and measurable impact on our body of knowledge, and effortlessly makes it a compelling story. One of those people is Alan Turing. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Alan Turing and early computing and the Ultra program, uh, the code breaking program in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, and a few different things that kind of overlap, but sort of through the framework of Alan Turing's life. And I'm not sure what I'm going to title this episode yet, because <laughs> it kind of is going to depend on where we spend the most time, you and I, when we talk through this. I've decided to sort of plan this less and uh, and and let it kind of open up a little more how about we call it the chinese civil wars oh no i'm done with those miller no <laughs> no <I'll wait>. never <laughs> escape no 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 uh, i'm i'm so happy with those episodes but whew, that was that was a lot of 2019 right there uh no no we're gonna talk about something nice and light and you know fun fun for a lot of it a cringe <laughs> um but uh, yeah, I'm 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 really excited to do this one, and it's been a while since I had you on, so I'm uh, I'm excited Punic to Wars? have you back. Yeah. It might be the Punic Wars was the last one. Eesh. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. though further ado, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it, it's going to cross a number of different uh, disciplines, but I think it's all stuff that you're fairly interested in. So you seem like kind of the perfect guest for this one. It seems like a Kevin topic. It's something that I. I definitely saw the imitation game. I can't tell you how much I remember or even how accurate that was. That's, I'm guessing not much. That's actually something that I, I was kind of interested in talking about a little bit at some point, probably mm-hmm. closer to the end once we've gone through all of this stuff. I've actually never seen it. Oh, okay. Um, and I think it's I think it's kind of an issue with historical the fiction, biopic genre <laughs> in general. But anyway, we can we can circle back around to that. That's okay. Uh, let's talk about the actual man himself. And sure. The, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch vehicle of 2014. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, he was born in 1912 uh, to two extremely wealthy families. His father was like wealthy Irish Protestant, extremely wealthy. The, the family had a baronet, actually. Oh wow. Um, yeah, uh, Alan Turing's nephew is the current is the current Baron of Turing, um, which is kind of wild. <laughs> 
huh. I kind of forget that that's still a thing sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's strange when you remember that people still hold titles like that. Yeah, yeah. It's a little odd. And his mother was uh, the daughter of the chief engineer of Madras Railways in uh, in India. It's a little which, money there, yeah. Yeah, a little money there. <laughs> Railways in India? Yeah, a little wow. lucrative. Um, they actually, uh, his, his father was an officer uh, in the army in India as well, but they decided that they didn't want... Uh, their children growing up in India. So they came back to uh, London to spend their formative years there. And they ended up sending both of their children, both? Ooh, I shouldn't say both. I don't know if there's more than two or not. Whoops. Some of them. Show notes already. Here we go. <laughs> um, they, they they wanted their children to go to school in uh, London rather than in, in India. So they sent them to extremely good public schools which in britain is what they call private schools for some reason because up is down there i guess i can't even wrap my head around that naming convention i i i've never understood it either but the fancy schools that you pay for yourself and not through the government are public schools i'm trying to think if it has something to do because i think like republican it might come from the same root word it means something completely different in like the old english sense as far as i know i'll be real with you i have absolutely no idea that sounds extremely plausible to me i guess okay based on zero evidence or context it might be the equivalent to sending someone to a democratic school here is all I'm oh, saying. oh i i have no idea we, we can look into that why well, not we've already started arts, notes. i have no idea here we go well yeah but th that's a that's that's kind of where i'm going with this is mm -hmm. at this point a good public school education is very much like a classical education so you're expected to learn latin and you're expected to know the humanities and and um turing was not really interested in that stuff from the start um you know, there was I, I found some some notes from a letter that the headmaster sent to his father, basically saying that he's going to have to decide whether he wants to become educated or he wants to become a, a mere scientific specialist. Oh, is that all? Is that all? Yeah. <laughs> but like that, that was that was the attitude here where it was like he's not paying any attention uh, to poetry. What's wrong with this kid? He's clearly an idiot. Got it. But this is mathematical genius simpleton. <laughs> but I mean, keep in mind that like this is this is an era where there is a bit of a separation between like the academy and those sorts of disciplines, unless you're at a specifically technical school. I see. So, I mean, yeah, if you're at, you know, Oxford uh, Department of Mathematics, then yes, that stuff's <laughs> going to matter. I but was just going to ask terms that of actually, like, yeah. Well, in, in terms of raising somebody from like a, a, an aristocratic background, basically to become a well-rounded member of society. Got it. They don't need to know math. They need to know cicero Courtly i guess stuff. <laughs> sure why I, not? I couldn't even come up with a word for it <laughs> um no it's it's all philosophy and language and, and things like that 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 are considered like the real preparatory okay. disciplines so this is at an echelon of society where being a scientist or a mathematician is considered like a layman's it's, position yeah he's, he's talking as though uh Turing the is on his yeah is on his way to become a, like a plumber or something like Got that it. basically yeah um which isn't necessarily like a fair overall assessment of what those types of fields uh or where those types of fields were at this point in time but it, it certainly speaks to the uh upper class british uh educational system right at least the mindset and the goal of that system mm -hmm. so yeah he goes to this uh preparatory school called sherburn at which he meets uh, uh another 
boy there named Christopher Morcom. And this is a really significant relationship for Turing. It's his, it's his first real uh, uh, relationship. And it's one that's going to actually affect him for most of his life because Morcom would actually die in 1930 when they were both 17 uh, of bovine tuberculosis. And um, it hit Turing really hard, which I say as though that's a weird thing. Of course it's not. Uh, you know, he had a four year long relationship with this, right. with this boy and, and he was devastated by his death. That is an extremely reasonable thing, but he actually ended up keeping up a relationship with Morcom's mother, uh, long after his death. Like they would exchange letters and things like that. That's it, yeah. Um, so it, it kind of, um, a lot of people have pointed to it as a, as, as sort of a formative, uh, experience for Turing. There's a lot of sort of, you know, speculative, like threw himself into his work at this point, or like it impacted his, you know, opinion on the existence of God, or like it just, it goes off the rails. Yeah. One thing that we need to keep in mind with Turing is that people love to speculate on alternatives with this guy. Oh, sure. And to some extent, understandable. He's a fascinating person Mm -hmm. who has a, a massive impact on some really formative areas of, uh, science and mathematics but people really get carried away with the what ifs, like even, even more than normal. Um, and so, you know, getting into like, what would have happened if Christopher had lived is, is kind of, yeah, I I think it kind of speaks to like the field in general where like, Mm. if you're programming anything and you change one thing, suddenly everything comes out differently. Suddenly things change entirely. Yeah. Like this is a field where if one thing had been slightly different, even in a personal life, Mm -hmm. You know, that's an interesting. How might have it affected everything that came afterwards? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I I'm not sure how conscious that is, but yeah, there's there's a real uh, relationship there. That's interesting. This is the title of my essay. If I'm in twelfth grade, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Um, Turing ends up at uh, King's College at Cambridge for mathematics. Extremely good school. Yep. Um, I've heard of it. And I don't live in that country. First class honors. Mm-hmm. Uh, does very well. Graduates. Um, for full honors, he's made a fellow at Cambridge at the age of 22. Wow. Uh, in 1935, based on some mathematical theorems that like had already been done by some, I think, German guy ages before. Mm-hmm. It happens at Cambridge, though. <laughs> it's good to put there. Yeah, we got it too, guys. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, he's, he's, he's already extremely well respected at a very young age. And in 1936, just one year later, he puts forth... One of his most important uh, uh, academic papers, I'm going to butcher this, but it's called on, on Computable Numbers with an Application to, this is the problem, the Entscheidungsproblem. It's a German word. Okay. I didn't really hit that as hard as I could have. Um, what that word means doesn't really matter. <laughs> What's really important here is uh, the theorem that he puts forth in this paper. He, he puts forth this idea of what he calls an automatic machine. Mm-hmm. But it's what's going to be uh, become known as a Turing machine, named after him. Right, and it is a it it is an absolutely revolutionary idea in uh, computer science, and it's an absolutely revolutionary idea that continues to be considered and studied and worked with in modern computer science, which is kind of wild when you think about it, because you would think we would be a little bit further along than something that came out 
like a good 80 years ago it's very interesting when you consider i believe it's moore's law Mm -hmm. where it's like the the power and and computational ability of anything like doubles after a year and a half or something like that yeah given 70 years it's like why are we even still thinking about this yeah what's interesting is moore's law is actually really shaky (laughs) of course but uh, (laughs) but yeah in general yeah you're you're right it's it's uh everything's progressed at such a fast pace since then but I, i think to to even understand or to appreciate turing uh, machines even more. We should talk about like where we're at in terms of like computational power in the early 20th century, because it's one of those things that we take advantage for or t- uh, take take for granted so much in our lives. Um, just like the ubiquitousness of not even specifically computers, but just electronics in general, the microchip, like all of these things. Like I, I don't know, calculators. Yeah, your your fridge is smarter than the thing that put the people on the moon right, et cetera, right. et cetera, all that stuff right it's it's kind of wild how much we've integrated in, into our lives but when we're looking at like early 20th century computation things are done manually that's just how it is i mean if you refer to a computer at this point in time a computer is a person right. a computer is like a teacher a teacher teaches a computer computes mm-hmm. right it's the same you know structure of a word and it's a it's, it's kind of considered not unskilled labor, but it is a very menial. Yeah, it's it's almost secretarial in nature, mm. in in a number of ways. Not least of which is that a lot of women are doing this. Actually, um, that this is this is labor that you know somebody's going to come along and say, "I need all these calculations done by tomorrow," and they're going to like farm it out to a bunch of people who are going because to do all the manual. math for you yeah yeah it's very manual it's very slow and they're going to return the results to you tomorrow yeah you're the guy at the top of the pyramid you come up with the idea and then <laughs> when you basically hand down the data to the people below you and they crunch it for you yeah and instead of a spreadsheet you have you a answer. dozen people out in a pit in the front of the in front of the office and they're going to pull this all, this all out for exactly you. if you're not working with just like handwritten calculations mm-hmm. there are very specific tools that exist to help with mathematical computations. I mean, abacuses are extremely fast and are still used at this point in time right. uh, for addition and subtraction. Uh, you have things like slide rules. I was going to say slide rule. Yeah. yeah. Just replace your trigonometry. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, slide rules are interesting. They're, they're kind of a weird tool. I was looking into them a little bit when I was brushing up on this. It's basically all based on logarithmic scales. Mm. And um, anyway, we don't need to get into it, but slide rules have been, in, uh, been around in some form or another since the 16th century when logarithms were created. It just is a relatively quick way of of uh, multiplying and dividing really large numbers uh, as well as um, as you mentioned some trickier trigonometry sometimes even some calculus depending on how they're they're set up but the thing is they're hard to use and they're kind of a specialized tool they're the sort of things that scientists and engineers are using and most people don't bother learning how to use because right. what they don't do is addition and subtraction hmm. which is the kind of math that most people need to do in their everyday lives day to day right so you don't have like a family slide rule sitting in a drawer for doing your taxes <laughs> right that's just not a thing it doesn't exist there's also very specialized machines that have been created that sort of hint at computation but are not anywhere close to what we would consider a computer today. So for example, there are machines that can be programmed in a certain sense of the word. One of the biggest places that this comes up in is textiles. Um, I talked about this with uh, Scott when we did the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Looms could be programmed into patterns using punch cards. That's actually where the very earliest computer programs on punch cards 
got their inspiration. And those are basically just, you know, is there a hole or is there a not, not a hole? This is where I drop a, not a stitch exactly, but whether or not something goes in front of or behind the warp and weft. Got it. Yep. And so, yeah, that's kind of a program, but like it's mechanical. There's no memory. There's all this stuff missing, right? Mm-hmm. Another way to think about that would be a music box. Right. Yep. Which has a sort of programmed melody built directly into that drum that spins, right? Like yeah. the, the crank that turns and it just physically, you yeah. know, it's, it's, flicks it's the entirely little... mechanical, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's predetermined, mm-hmm. but that's like all it can do, right? right. Like it's yeah. a very specialized tool. Uh, you also get stuff like astrolabes, right? Uh, astrolabes, sorry. Uh, that, that calculate things like, um, uh, the orbits of planets or when, uh, eclipses are going to happen. Uh, there was a, a mechanical like tide height, uh, calculator invented in the 19th century but each thing is like custom built for one task we sort of almost got to the uh the region of a, a real computer uh with charles babbage uh okay. in the yeah. early 19th century uh with his proposed difference engine uh that he worked on between 1822 and 1831 i was trying to remember the term <laughs> uh yeah the difference engine um but it was it was never actually built it required thousands of like discrete special made like handmade pieces Mm -hmm. it was almost like a clockwork computer in a certain way like it used all these like weird differential cogs and gears and stuff that was so highly specialized that it couldn't be like automated or yeah mass produced well each one would be different because it was doing a different like function and you know the idea of of hand producing i think i saw somewhere around 2500 discrete pieces uh each to a different pattern is just prohibitive right yeah. like he just ran out of funding and for kind of understandable you reasons. need a computer to figure out how to make one people have worked on difference engines since just to kind of prove that they would work and they do kind of mm-hmm. tricky they, they're very very finicky but he was right his design would have worked if the idea that i have is correct i've seen like some people make like uh rube goldberg machines mm. where like you're flipping a switch with every like marble that's running past a track like it runs one way and mm-hmm. then it switches so that the next one runs the other way yeah so you can kind of get like these like sort of powers of two running in different directions yeah it's i think a similar idea where you can kind of build this very specialized machine to do a very specific thing but yeah. it's a lot of work and it's doing that one thing and that's it <laughs> yeah basically mm-hmm. um but the difference engine could be programmed which mm-hmm. is the thing like it could be oh, programmed okay. to, to perform different functions and that's what makes it really interesting in hindsight at least. so is that entirely mechanical too like it, you're programming it by moving physical pieces to different locations or changing out specific mechanical pieces i'm not entirely clear on how the programs worked on like a physical level mm-hmm. i just know that programs could be written for it okay uh i don't i'm not sure if it was a punch card system or if it was actually like a uh an ex- like interchanging mechanical i'm pieces. almost picturing like a gear system like I, on a bicycle yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that was the case but again we can we can take a look at that a little bit later mm-hmm. and, and pop them in the notes all of this is very like academic that we've we've talked about so far in general people need to measure distances they need to you know weigh goods they need to you know, keep track of their finances or the, or their, it, you know, it, like it's, it's, it's all pretty simple math that most people need on a day to day. And then uh, there are specific fields where you need a little bit better. Engineering was one example that we brought up before. Also the military. Right. Um, there's a big change between the mid 19th century and the early 20th century in terms of like artillery range. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you get away from point the cannon over there 
and into hope it hits something <laughs> and in into we have to deal with the curvature of the earth and not being able to see our target and ballistics um it gets very complicated and that stuff is all being done like by hand and they have little kind of specialized slide rules that make it faster but in reality they have people like literally by hand calculating firing solutions i'm literally picturing like a you know a military dude loading up a cannon and then a nerd running up with like a protractor <laughs> and being like slightly adjusting it and then <laughs> i mean you're not far off yeah. yeah you're not you're not far off i mean you get to the point where in in world war ii you get the battle of midway which is one of those ones that people have heard the name and probably don't know much else about, which is fine. Yeah. I can tell by facing one of them. <laughs> I've but, definitely heard of that but one. But one yes. of the things that's uh, really interesting about the Battle of Midway is it's the first naval engagement in which neither fleet could see the other one. Oh. They were so far apart. Okay, okay. And it's not as though they're just sending guys in rowboats, or I guess in, in this case airplanes, over there yeah. and being like, ah, you're a little far. Just bring it back a little bit. Like they're... They're calculating this stuff out. It's a battleship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, they've got they've got guys on those ships that are just running calculations for all of this stuff. And it's slow work and it's hard work, but people are still doing it physically. So now that we've gone over all of that stuff, let's talk about what a Turing machine is. Because okay. we kind of just glossed over that before. Barely the lead. What Turing proposed out of an automatic machine was this thought experiment where you have a strip of tape. And on the strip is uh, uh, symbols. And the way that the machine works is you look down and the machine is, is set up so you can only see one symbol at a time as the tape moves through. Okay, yep. And he actually imagines this as a, as a human operating this, but it doesn't need to be. It's not going to be in the future. But each time the operator looks into this machine and sees a symbol, they have some sort of rule that they follow. A decision. When they see, yeah. yeah, yeah, a decision to make. When they see this symbol, they do this. And they output it in some way. And he further proposed that the output could be looped back around and affect the input in the future. Okay. As in, they could be writing on the tape that's still to come. They could be printing as they're reading. <laughs> yep. But the whole point was that this is a way of thinking about automating calculations so that a machine could do these calculations. It doesn't propose like an actual structure. This isn't a real thing. This is a this is a hypothetical thought experiment. Mm -hmm. But what he's talking about is this is how you would get a machine to simulate thinking. The next thing that he proposes is what's called a universal machine. And this is one ab abstraction away from a Turing machine. Okay. And a universal machine is a machine that could be told what one specific Turing machine's instructions are. Okay. And then given that machine's instruction or uh, uh, inputs, sorry, mm -hmm. and exactly match what that Turing machine would output. Okay. And if you can do that, and that condition today is known as Turing complete, mm -hmm. then you have a, a universal machine that could simulate any Turing machine. And if you have that machine, that means that you have a, a, a machine that can compute theoretically uh -huh. any computation that you can think of any any uh, like any real computation okay. in like the mathematical sense of the word that sounds really basic because we're kind of used to computers doing that yes sort of predicting an output this is this is what a computer is yeah and he just sort of lobbed that out there in the 1930s mm -hmm. this was actually a groundbreaking uh, uh paper and again it's one of those things where it's kind of like okay so you're talking about programming thing to do a thing, huh? Mm -hmm. 
and that's about it but what, what he's saying is like no this is this is possible we don't have to have these very specialized items if we can find a way to uh, properly encode operations into a machine structure so that always does just what we tell it to do and if we can do it in a way that it can simulate any other operating system mm -hmm. uh, or operating uh, instructions, then we have a universal machine. It, it's a machine that can ca calculate anything. Right. Yeah. That's all there is to it. And people went, oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Given a certain input and a certain expectation of an output, mm -hmm. can it provide you with the correct output? <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. But that's like right there. That's the foundation of, of computing, like mm -hmm. the entire, the entire uh, discipline of computer science yeah yeah all of it comes down to neural learning to program you know what the output is that you're looking for you're just mm -hmm. looking to actually come up with the program that gives you that given the correct input right and as you build more and more complex turing machines and as you expect universal machines to be able to simulate better and better turing machines mm -hmm. then it's going to continue abstracting to a point where uh it's doing calculations that people cannot do um, and that's sort yeah. of the trajectory that he's seeing from or at the very least that they would require a lot of time and a lot of tools to do right? yeah yeah i mean cannot is 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 a very specific you know a misleading way of putting it you're right but yeah it's it's this idea of like okay well if we can set it up so it is actually automated mm -hmm. so that we don't need that person there yeah that's looking at the symbol and doing the thing on the instructions then we can make it go a lot faster than a person. We can run it 24 hours a day. Right. We can have, you know, like all of this stuff mm -hmm. becomes possible. Yeah, because, uh, you know, someone can multiply two times three in their head. But if you're multiplying four-digit numbers, you might not be able to do that without a calculator. And mm -hmm. that's what we need is yeah. that machine to yeah. do that for us. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the starting point for all of the computer science stuff as far as, as Turing is, con uh, is concerned. Let's leave him there and uh, move off of... Turing specifically uh, for the time being and move our way over to Poland. I've said a couple of times that I'm not really interested in doing a Second World War uh, podcast on here in general, but I think this specific aspect of World War II is interesting enough to kind of make a, a bit of an exception. Dip in. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to talk about communication um, in the first half of the 20th century. Because it, it advances quite a bit. I mean, you get this invention of radio in the late 19th century, and the military applications of that become apparent very, very quickly. But so do the limitations, because one of the main issues with radio is if you got the right uh, uh, receiver, anyone can hear what you're transmitting. It's a broadcast. It's out there for anyone to intercept. Yeah, you, you can't really control that. So, you know, you can run phone lines mm -hmm. and you can make those you know, relatively secure. Big asterisk on that. We don't need to talk about phone taps right now. But, right. you know, you get that sort of World War One, you know, guy running out to the to the trenches with the yeah. backpack, with the reel of... With the rule of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, was, that was the thing they would call back. Uh, and that's secure. That's great. But you're limited by, like, physical constraints there right right and to when you come along to... and cut that and then you're just sunk <laughs> yeah exactly um to be able to communicate with you know a world war ii era navy for example mm. via radio broadcast is invaluable right um to be able to coordinate on that level is is absolutely necessary for running you know a, a modern navy and it's not not just navy the air force runs on this stuff as well and with as quickly as everything moves in the second world war the Germans are just addicted to the stuff. Mm -hmm. They need to be 
in contact. They need to be uh, coordinated for it all to work properly. And radio is the answer for all of that. Oh, there's so much happening so fast. It needs to be coordinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that that everyone listening in thing is 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 the real issue. And so, around the beginning, or sorry, around the end of the First World War, solutions start presenting themselves to this problem. People have been encoding messages for a very long time, a, a very very long time. And there's a number of ways of doing it. But most of them, as soon as you know the trick, it's pretty easy to recognize what it is that's happening there. Mm-hmm. And decoding it becomes almost automatic. <laughs> yeah, very, very easy. And so the trick's to actually encode things in a way that not only is it like unfamiliar, it's mm-hmm. not about not knowing how something is encoded. It's whether or not that encoding can be broken mm-hmm. uh, with the tools that you have. And, you know, there are a couple of you know, mathematically foolproof ways to encode a message. You know, there's something called a one-time pad. I don't know if you've ever come across that before. Yep. Uh-huh. But essentially, you you have a duplicate, you know, two duplicate uh, keys that are longer than the message that you need to encode. Mm-hmm. And each person, the one encoding and the one decoding, has that same key in front of them. And then you can just send that encoded message, and it doesn't matter who gets it. They can't decode it without the key. It's impossible. Right. As long as the key is truly random... And as long as the key is longer than the message is being yeah. sent. It's so hyper-specific that it has all these different like logarithmic scales are off the charts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if it's like a 16-digit even, yeah, like you're going to be sitting there for your entire life trying to figure out what the key is. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the key is actually the length of the message, so the number of characters on oh, one of okay. these paths. Yep. So you can have a pad with 200, a 200-character-long 200 key. Right. And so as long as it's shorter than that, you're never repeating the key. Mm-hmm. So you can't work it out backwards. It can't be brute forced. Oh, I see. Yeah. Even with modern uh, uh, computational methods. Again, assuming that the key is actually like truly random. However, to produce uh, a one-time pad is extremely time-consuming and extremely difficult, especially before computers. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that's reserved for like top intelligence for espionage work, things like that. Right. What's more, like the way that they're produced, it's it's generally like a one-to-one thing. Like not everyone can have a one-time pad and you don't want everyone to have a one-time pad that matches everyone else's. We're talking like the hundreds seasons. or even thousands of, of pads. It's mm-hmm. a, it's really difficult to produce. And if one of those is gone, well, then you're, you're done. Yeah, you assume that you've lost security mm-hmm. and it's useless. Yeah, exactly. So some concessions are required and... Cryptographers of that era are looking at what are the possibilities here. And one of the things that they come up with that that seems to be really promising is this uh, rotary system. And it's developed by a German inventor named Arthur Schervius at the end of First World War, as I mentioned. And he actually ends up starting to sell a commercial version of this in 1923 under the brand name Enigma. Mm-hmm. And this, with some modifications, is going to be what the German government is going to use for the rest of the Second World War. The way that Enigma works in a nutshell is that there are three sort of rotary drums in the middle, and it looks like a giant typewriter. Mm -hmm. And when you press a key on the typewriter, there's a bank of uh, uh, letters up at the top of it as well. And when you press a key, uh, the light is going to light up at the top. Mm -hmm. And what it's done is sent an electrical signal from that key through those rotaries mm-hmm. uh, in a certain uh, uh, pathway. Each rotary has a different pathway and out the other side, essentially. It's a little more complicated than that. But each time you press a key, mm-hmm. those rotaries turn 
and it uh, changes the pathways. So even if you sat there and just pushed A, 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 mm -hmm. it's going to come out as five different letters on the output side. Right. Then the output is what's known as a reflector, or at least it goes through a reflector before it gets to the output. And the whole purpose of this is to be able to decode it with the same machine. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that if you have an Enigma machine, mm -hmm. you have the same rotors in the same order, mm -hmm. you set it to the same key, yeah. and you push the same buttons in the same order, the same output will come out on the lights. Mm -hmm. But if you take the light outputs and mm -hmm. you run it through again, your clear text is going to come back through. I see. So as long as you have the same machine with the same configuration, you mm -hmm. can decode a message. That's right. But you need to have that machine. <laughs> yes, and the configuration. Got it. And then they just send this off basically as Morse code mm -hmm. over clear radio channels. Yeah, yeah. And it just looks like garbledy. Like yeah. It's just keyboard slams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's complete garbage. Yeah. Um, and this is a pretty good idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, without knowing a number of very important uh, pieces of information, it's really hard to crack that. And so the, the, the government looks at it. They go, this is pretty good. They make a couple of extra um modifications to it to make it even more secure okay uh the main one being something called a plug board so uh what a plug board does is adds an extra amount of randomness to it even before it gets to the rotors mm -hmm. it changes the input of your your, oh, your button so if you how to best describe it if your rotor is set up so you press g and it goes to a mm -hmm. it's going to go to the a but if you've got uh, a thing plugged into the the switch or the plug board uh -huh. that has g connected to b mm -hmm. it's going to be the same as if you'd actually pressed the b so you're just adding another layer of extraction yes um i have no idea if that made sense to anyone at all um it's almost easier to just look up a picture of one of these things it actually looks very intuitive like when you see it it's mm -hmm. like oh this makes perfect sense. So, but then you would, to decode, you would use a similar configuration of plug board then? Yes. So your okay. plug board has to match, your key has to match, mm -hmm. your drum configuration has to match. So is the idea with adding that, because what this sounds like to me is you're just adding a fourth layer of abstraction, like yes. it's no different than just having a fourth tumbler? Well, it is different in that the tumblers are uh, hard programmed. So if you have, uh, the, the pathways on it are mm -hmm. always the same. So on, on Tumblr one, mm -hmm. input number three always outputs to input no, or output number five. Okay. On the second one, input number three always outputs to fifteen. Whatever. I'm just making stuff sure, up. Sure. Yeah. So you only have a certain number of uh, permutations that are possible out of that. Okay. Um, the plug boards make it not infinite, but they add a significant number of extra possibilities okay. making it that much more secure and then i suppose it also adds an extra piece of machinery that you need to if you even wanted to decode it uh yes you would like have to if have... You have the enigma machine without the plug board you're still not good enough even if right. it has the right set of tumblers yes that's correct i mean you could simulate the plug board by just manually substituting um the 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 plug board uh connections yeah but you would have to know what those connections were yeah um so, but it adds a whole other layer that's more difficult to yes. brute force at that oh, point. Oh, certainly, yeah. certainly. Yeah, because it's, it's not static. It could be any configuration. Okay, got it. Um, and you can have, when this starts, you, you usually have about six uh, different connections on the plug board and just let the rest do their own thing. Okay. Um, that being said, as, as solid as all this stuff is, there are some uh, issues with both the machinery itself 
and the way that it ends up being used by the German military uh, that make it less secure than they're expecting. Because the, the, the German military has like full confidence in Enigma. Mm-hmm. They are extremely confident that this is literally unbreakable. Okay. Um, which is some hubris. It's a little hubris. But it is a very good system. Like uh-huh. this is a, a completely reasonable uh, cryptographic system in, mm. in the... the the 20s when when this becomes commercially viable right of course one of the main issues with it is the fact that um because of that reflector a a, a letter can never be coded to itself okay if, if you're looking to work through various permutations of that uh the tumblr settings mm-hmm. if you're working through and you find one where a letter is coming back uh matching itself mm-hmm. you know it's no good and you can just toss it out quickly reduces it yeah, that's a that's a fairly big flaw, I would say. It is. I said quickly reduces it as though it's actually fast, but it's, it's just <laughs> no, a way not. of eliminating it. It's actually yeah. quite uh, difficult to run through all these permutations. Mm-hmm. The first ones to start breaking uh, the Enigma encoding uh, is actually the Polish Cipher Bureau, beginning in 1932 or so. There's a, a French spy in Germany named uh, Hans Thilo Schmidt, who managed to steal the daily keys and the Tumblr alignments for all of September and all of October of 1932. Okay, that's significant. (laughs) Very significant. So what they did at the Polish Cipher Bureau was get every single message they could for each day Mm -hmm. and compare it to the the settings of the, uh, the, the Tumblrs. And using this, without ever actually getting their hands on an enigma machine they have this they have a a sample they began reverse engineering the wiring that exists inside the machines yeah because they have i have two months worth of here's the encoded message here's the decoded message what can we learn from this yeah Uh, did i did i mention i'm not sure if i mentioned this part um when when you set the tumblers each time you press a key the the tumblers advance did i mention that yeah so you can press a five times and you'll get five different okay perfect it is it is important. I just wanted to make sure I didn't <laughs> yep. uh, forget that part. What al- what else is important is that not all of the tumblers advance every single time, especially when you get into later and later versions of Enigma. Uh, so you can't guarantee that something's going to rotate each time, mm-hmm. which continues to add like abstractions, right? So Schmidt gets them uh, all of this information, and they begin wor- reverse engineering the wiring of machines. And from there, once you know how the tumblers work, they start manufacturing these these pseudo enigmas these these false enigma machines that work essentially the same way as uh a, an enigma as an enigma with a certain configuration mm-hmm. and basically they just make them hardwired because there's only six rotor configurations you can have because there's only three of them right okay so there's only six permutations it could possibly be in i see and then so they just take these six different machines with these six different configurations mm-hmm. set the key on that machine and get outputs put the same encoded message into all of them and see which one comes out as anything yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and it is extremely tedious work Mm -hmm. because this is all manual yeah it takes two operators actually to to operate an an enigma machine one is typing the message the other one is watching the lights and writing down whatever the lights say oh i see it is then translated into morse and uh, uh, transmitted over radio. It's quite tedious. So the lights is the only form of output. Like this isn't printing anything. No, no. So no, it's no. basically like someone's reading the output as the other person is typing the input. Yes, at least at this stage in 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 the game, okay. it's going to get a little bit better later on. Actually, the British version does 
all of this automatically. Mm-hmm. It's called TypeX, and it's based on the exact same system, which is which is kind of interesting. Uh, TypeX won't ever be broken, but uh, yeah, they 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 do have it, so it is uh, outputting more signals basically which Mm. makes a lot of sense but what you sacrifice for that is portability it's extremely heavy it's big it's clunky uh it's hard to move around and in an enigma machine you could just carry around in a briefcase oh wow it'd be heavy but yeah you can just one person can carry around i'm picturing something the size of a typewriter uh yeah i mean it's it's kind of more like twice the size of a typewriter sort of thing okay but let's call it smaller than a guitar case yeah so anyways, in 1938, the Polish Cipher Bureau, specifically an operative named uh, Marian Uryevsky, uh, manages to create this machine called the Bombo, sorry, Bomba Cryptologiczna, which is the cryptologic bomb. Yeah, I, I put that together. <laughs> what this does is starts, you know, they already have that pseudo Enigma machine, right? And they already know about the reflector property. And they realize that what they can do is create this machine that with an extra level of abstraction, you run the text through, like Mm -hmm. the the, the, uh, encoded text, Mm -hmm. and you run it through permutations of uh, rotary settings, and it can automatically tell you whether or not there are any contradictions, whether there are any times in this message that a letter will encode to itself. Oh, okay. And uh, using those settings. Mm -hmm. And this is really useful because it allows them to cut down the number of possible configurations significantly before they even start working on breaking the code. That is useful. There's another quality of the operation of Enigma machines that helps them narrow it down even more quickly, which is you could kind of call it a checksum almost the way that all messages worked was that there would be a key like a pre agreed uh key that the operative would type twice in a row okay but now have to be communicated first so that the germans could decode it themselves just to confirm that the machine is configured properly basically Mm -hmm. so uh you would you would punch in you know uh uh, abc abc Mm -hmm. and it would come out garbled obviously on the other end but when you type in that garbled stuff your message should start with abc abc right um after you type those six letters you then reset the rotors to their starting position and then you type the rest of the yeah because now you know you've got them in the right position but what that means Mm -hmm. is that you know uh you know an encrypted pair because number one and number four Mm -hmm. encrypt to each other ah i see Oh, okay. Number two and number five and encrypt repeat. to each other. Number three and number six. So it's going to come out like GHX, G, yeah. <laughs> something else. Yes. Or rather not G, but you'll know that those are the same. Yeah. Uh, same. There's, they're decoded to be the same character. Yeah. It helps to eliminate many more mm-hmm. possibilities. And so using these like kind of shaky methods, they start doing a pretty decent job of, of deciphering enigma communications even before the war begins yeah i'm trying to sort of wrap my head around what like the probability of it is where it's like okay well if you've got a system that basically has like 18 rules and you don't know what all the rules are but you know what three of them are like how much can you figure out just based on that it's hard work i imagine it's a lot of hard work and a lot of false positives so in code breaking now Mm -hmm. you kind of talk about it in basically like two stages, right? Like obtaining the encrypted text and then breaking it mm-hmm. is 
getting the real text, right? Like when you break the code, there it is, right? Right, yeah. Um, breaking was actually step two of code breaking in uh, World War II in that breaking referred to discovering the methodology by which something was encrypted. Right. So reverse engineering the enigma, essentially. Yes, yeah. And then solving was the third part of it because breaking does so much to get you to solving but Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually solve it for you right right at the point where it's broken you at least know the method and you can kind of dial into it to solve it yeah yeah there's a solid long process to get back to what it what it actually says now so all that work to like figure out even just how it works is like absolutely invaluable in 1939 or so they make a couple of changes to the enigma they add two more uh uh rotors wow and they, there's only ever three plugged in, but they can select from any configuration of five. Okay. So you can have, ro- you know, rotor three, four, one. You mm-hmm. can have two, five, four. Does the order matter? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, the, the order does matter. So that's why they had six bombas, right? It could be one, two, three, one, yeah. three, two, yeah. two, one, three, two, three, one, three, one, two, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now we have five. So instead of six possibilities, we have 60. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. They're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we just got a lot more complicated. And Poland at the outbreak of World War II, um, not the most resource wealthy. Technologically country. savvy. Rayevsky said at one point that like the problem was never the method. No. The problem was just having the money and the people and the time. They could have kept breaking Enigma for years, in his opinion. And mm-hmm. I, I saw I saw at one point him talking about basically considering code breaking uh, the biggest Polish contribution of the entire war, and I'm not certain that he's wrong on that. Um, but he he sort of talked about it wistfully as though that was something he really would have liked to have seen continue. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they had, they didn't stop eventually. Just they ran out of resources. Well, they were invaded in 1939. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, the uh, you know they're 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 invaded at the end of August of 1939 mm-hmm. in July realizing that they were out of resources and that this was something that they couldn't really continue yeah. not only couldn't couldn't continue but also couldn't keep to themselves any longer because they had shared uh intelligence that had resulted from i was just about to ask uh, i was gonna say did this sort of you know rebel alliance style get <laughs> leaked to yeah. the people who could do something yeah there's it? this big conference in july of 1939 where the polish cipher bureau gets a bunch of people together from britain and france and goes okay. here's enigma yeah here's how it works here's how we're solving we know it. up to this point yeah and they hand over all of this stuff and go, like, please do something with this. We can only keep solving this so much longer. Mm-hmm. And then the war begins. I think uh, we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Project Ultra and uh, some more of Turing's contributions to code breaking World War II. Back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Yo. And we've been talking actually not a lot about Turing, more about <laughs> more about the Enigma machines, because they're a really fascinating little oddity in history. Um, I think it's one of those things that people have heard about a lot. Like mm-hmm. might get overcovered. But I'm 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 not sure. On the other on the other hand, like not breaking Enigma has 
serious consequences for the course of the war yeah i I don't know that i was ever like formally taught any of this at all it was probably like a throwaway like three sentence thing in a textbook where it's like the germans Mm. used the enigma code that was nigh unbreakable but alan turing came along and saved the day yeah the 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 poles really get left out of the story i I had no idea it's kind of like it's kind of like then the war broke out and the british came along and broke the whole thing wide open that's why i had that moment in the first piece here where i'm like oh yeah i guess war hasn't started <laughs> yeah no this isn't this isn't wartime yet it's it's kind of interesting but i i think there's also that weird period in the 30s where like everyone knew it was coming everyone knew it was coming <laughs> um there's a there's a pretty significant buildup. up I, I would say at least six years before the war where mm. it was like something's going down like we got to keep an eye on these guys yeah, they're yeah. up to no good there's something in the air <laughs> yeah and you know when when you're poland and you hear some of the rhetoric that goes around about slavs yeah uh, start tugging nervously at your collar yeah you're sleeping with one eye open yeah so um yeah all this espionage is absolutely happening in between the wars that's, that's how it's how the world works that's i was gonna say politics but it's more than that it's just kind of everything well, it's how Everyone's the game changed in the 20th everything. century yeah. yeah but uh anyways uh war is now broken out the the polish uh cypher bureau has handed over all their information to uh the british and the french and britain has decided that this is absolutely something that they want to focus on they're extremely interested in sig- uh, signal intel at this point in time there's a, a big expectation both before world war one and before world war ii that the navy is going to be what wins this for um either side right and what ends up coming out of that generally speaking is that actually not a lot of naval action actually occurs mm. because it's mostly uh blockade actions right um, but they want to know what the Navy is up to. They want to know what the Navy is thinking. And they want to know that if they're going to decide to break through one of those blockades, they want to know where and when. Right, yeah. So they create something that's known as the Government Code and Cipher School, uh, the GCNCS, um, that is specifically devoted to working on Enigma, continuing to break its codes, learning as much as they can about uh, confidential communication uh, among the german military turing in the last little while spent 1936 to 1938 uh, actually at princeton working on his phd yep, yep. um in specifically pure math but with a sub focus on cryptology mm-hmm. uh he got very interested in code breaking at this point in his life uh he actually worked for a while uh under john von neumann who wanted to hire him as soon as he was done his phd to work for him as like a, a research assistant. Neumann is going to be a big name in two places. Number one, in the birth of modern computing, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of why he had on Spoiler an eye on Turing, <laughs> yeah. um, but had also learned a lot from Turing. Right. Neumann also worked on the Manhattan Project, oh. which is a kind of, you know, while we're talking about historical what ifs here, <laughs> Turing could have ended up on the, on the Manhattan Project rather than on Ultra, which is kind of a... Ooh weird consideration yeah i'm not even 100 percent sure what that would mean let's of course not <laughs> let's let's take a break for a second and talk about something called counterfactual history i've talked about this before yes. this sort of like what if game right and a lot of historians don't like it mm-hmm. uh they find it extremely counterproductive <laughs> yeah and that's not always exactly true because it can be used as a sort of 
a different approach at uh, at analyzing a situation and its potential impact uh, in, in terms of like how would things have been different if this hadn't happened. It's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment, and and it has its places. Mm-hmm. It's it has its specific uses. The the bigger issue is when those uh, those exercises don't really have a good or reasonable practical outcome, right. and then it just turns into. Uh, somewhere between a bunch of storytelling yeah, and a bunch fiction. of nonsense. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, uh, don't pretend to get any value out of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's 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 what it comes down to. It's the whole, you know, what, what if Hitler was killed as a baby or Red Dawn? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or you know, what if I don't know? What if the Aztecs had developed jet engines or something like that? It just like doesn't yeah, matter. What if? Who cares? <laughs> like, sure, let's things explore that. Completely different in ways I can't imagine. <laughs> right, but considering something like what if Turing had been on the Manhattan Project mm-hmm. versus on Ultra isn't completely devoid of value because what you're considering really what that question actually is Mm -hmm. is what if the atomic bomb had been developed by the americans before or or much earlier than it was right Right. or what if uh ultra or what if the enigma breaking was less successful than it was i see and you're comparing the 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 relative effects on ending world war ii between those two programs so that's not completely useless yeah but it is one of those things that you have to watch that you're not going to get carried away with. Of course. Right? That's that's really where it comes down to. Mm-hmm. It can be, this is a fun thing to talk about over beers, but that's, you know, if you want to get any more strenuous with it, you have to really watch yourself. Otherwise, you get you know, completely off uh, course very, very easily. So, oh, man. I, I imagine a, a gaggle of drunk historians just falling deep down a rabbit hole. Wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's continue. Yeah. Um, Turing returns to the UK in 1939 and hears about the GCNCS and immediately uh, joins up. They're happy to have them. Mm-hmm. They realize very, very early on that this isn't just a program that needs a bunch of mathematicians or, or like, you know, like computers, like low grade uh, operatives uh, just running things through brute force. That's not going to work right. forever, that they need people working at a higher level to solve these problems, not just like solve today's problem but mm-hmm. solve the enigma problem, the problem. <laughs> yeah exactly um and so they realize that mathematicians make really good cryptographers mm-hmm. and having a, a math phd with a focus in cryptography uh yeah that's a useful tool set for this program it's been years since i've seen the imitation game but i seem to remember like this scene kind of being like the right stuff <laughs> i could see that Yep. Where it's very much like we've got our skilled operatives, or like right. Ocean's Eleven almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a slow walk down a possible problem. <laughs> um, it's interesting because one of the recruiting tools they would use mm-hmm. was crossword contests. Yeah, I, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, and and specifically they were looking for women who were really good at crossword contests because a lot of people that they would normally put into some of the roles at Bletchley Park, which is where this program was run out of. A lot of the a lot of those roles were uh, would would have gone to men who are now serving. War, war breaks out; everyone signs up. Like yeah, that's just kind of how that works. Serving, or they've been promoted to like you know a rank of like a captain or a general or something sure. like that, and it, it's not their number one priority necessarily, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so, Bletchley Park is going to be overwhelmingly staffed by women during the war, and that's one aspect of all of this that kind of gets 
overlooked for a, a couple of reasons that we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, as many as 75% of people working on Project Ultra mm -hmm. are, are women. And it skews in terms of like the role that you would have in the program. Uh, if you're a cryptographer or uh, otherwise kind of directing, you're almost certainly a man. But if you are running the actual day-to-day -day calculations mm -hmm. um, or even some more complex things like the, the, there's a method that they're going to use to sort of narrow down possibilities. It's more guesswork or educated guesswork, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of women would be working in those roles. And yeah, you, you get to hear a lot about Turing and how he's a super genius and whatever. But the, yeah, it, it's it's mainly run by women. So this is entirely civilian other than like a military oversight it's it's largely civilian there is absolutely military oversight this is uh top secret classified um they're going to be put through some rudimentary training in terms of classification mm -hmm. um they're going to be going through significant background checks things like that but yes it's closer to like this it, it would fall under the uh it, it would fall under the umbrella of mi6 rather than I was going to um, ask, it sounds like a, like a spy network, but it's, it's very like sort of grassroots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. M MI is military intelligence, mm -hmm. of course. So it's, it's very like, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of technically military, but they're not, uh, necessarily going to be given like ranks or mm -hmm. have to go through basic or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Um, That's not what they're there for. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very much like a blended, mm -hmm. uh, uh, department anyways. As soon as they have that meeting with Polish uh, intelligence, they go straight to work on Enigma. Turing is one of the people who identifies uh, very quickly that there's a big flaw in the way that the Bomba is run um, to solve these problems, which is that they ex they assume that checksum at the beginning of the message, those mm -hmm. six those repeated three rather uh, letters at the beginning of the message. Right. And he basically goes, they can stop doing that at any time. Right. And these machines would become completely useless. Mm -hmm. And he's right. They actually stopped doing that in May of 1940. So very shortly after war breaks out. What was the workaround? Like, why did they stop? Why did they stop? Like how the, the checksum, it seemed like, was necessary to sort of relay to the people receiving the message what the key was going to be. No, 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 no. Both sides would have the key independently. I the see. checksum was to verify that the settings were uh, done properly. I see. Which isn't really necessary because you would get gibberish if you don't have it set properly. So it just became sort of a formality that they decided to dispense with. Yeah, because of security concerns, Got very it. understandably. Yep, makes sense. Um, just okay. because they thought it was unbreakable didn't mean that they didn't continue to refine and improve on the, the system as mm -hmm. they went. As soon as that's gone, the Bomba in its original form stops being really all that useful. Uh, it's it's entirely predicated on those those six uh, letters at the beginning. And so they had to find new workarounds. And Turing began working on something they just they, they called the bomb, B-O-M-B-E, which uh, w was a refinement of that Bomba. But it was it, it was built independently of those those checksums. But it was built in such a way that you could input a small string of expected outputs. Okay. And it would check whether or not that was a possibility in the current configuration. I see. So and, like names of locations or, or something like that. Right. This is what's known as a crib. Mm -hmm. The cribs were items that they're expecting to be in the message in some format. So a lot of 
messages would would start out with ANX, yeah. which is on which is like two, like mm-hmm. two so, so and so, and then X marking a space, right? I because see. none of these things have like spaces in them, so they'd have space indicators. I see, I see. Um, or a lot of them would have uh, the phrase in German, nothing to report. A lot of them would have, uh, you know, there's a lot of other like really common phrases they could check for. Could you get as basic as prepositions or does that not work in German? Well, no, prepositions do work, but they're so common and so short That's that you would get a lot of, you get a lot of false, false positives. I gotcha. Um, so, you know, having two at the beginning of the message is like, mm-hmm. it's the first couple of letters. Right. Whereas a preposition just in general in a, in a yeah. message could fall anywhere. Um, that's not going to be helpful. Uh, there's a kind of a, it's kind of a famous, uh, crib known as 40 weepy weepy. And what that means is there's a couple of things you need to know. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like it. Number one, uh, joke. when they, when they start off with the enigma, they don't, they only have the, the like the letters of the alphabet. Okay. And it's like the 26 we use in English. Mm-hmm. They don't have numbers in there. So what they do for uh, numbers, like numerals, is they use their position along the top row of the keyboard to relate to a number. So Q being one, W being two, et cetera, et cetera. But they bracket it with a Y on each side to show that those are numerals. I see. The other thing you need to know is that the German word for uh, like continuation uh, is uh, Fortsetzung, which is generally like shortened to just f-o-r-t okay be like starting off a memo with re right regarding um but what you would get because there's only a kind of a limited length that you can send one of these messages and you would have a hard uh switch over at midnight right Mm -hmm. to the new uh, set up okay. so you could transmit up until midnight and then you'd have to stop reset your your uh uh rotors mm-hmm. and go again and so 40 weepy weepy uh refers to or 40 weepy sometimes refers to the fact that 2330 like military time yeah is spelt out w-e-e-p oh so okay yeah. the short version f- so it's continuation of our message from 23:30 or 11:30 p.m. Okay. So you would get a lot of messages right from the very beginning of the day starting with mm-hmm. uh FORT. Yeah, RE. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Y mm-hmm. W E E P Y. So bracketing bracketing that 23:30. Yeah. So 40 weepy. Yeah. Uh, Got it. But it worked really well. It was uh-huh. really common. It's it's just like a kind of sloppy thing. A it's human a error yeah. <laughs> that you can take advantage of. Yeah, yeah. And it works really, really well for them. There's a lot of ways here where like Turing is very like he's presented as being like the sole like mastermind behind this entire program. Mm-hmm. And that's really not true. Even in the case of the bomb, which yes, he he did uh contribute to significantly uh, its development. There's a there's a there's this massive piece inside the the architecture of the bomb known as the diagonal board, which is created by I believe it's Gordon Welchman uh, built that. Uh, uh, it, it's this piece that just automatically checks for those reflected digits that wasn't in Turing's original design for the bomb, okay. and it cuts down on the possibilities like extremely quickly yeah, yeah. computationally speaking to the point where one of these bombs they estimate is doing about a hundred people's work uh per day wow yeah how, how many people are we talking about running this then 
running one of these machines, yes. it runs automatically. So what you do, the way that you actually run a bomb mm-hmm. is you take a, a crib, a, a suspected a piece suspected of phrase. Yeah. yeah. A suspected phrase. You, uh, there's a spot where you input it and the, uh, the, the bomb just starts running through permutations. Okay. So it, let's say it starts with AAA mm-hmm. and it's, this is the bomb that you're using the configuration of rotor one, two, three. Okay. Uh, it starts with AAA. It starts running your clear text through the intercepted text. Okay. And looking for that crib. Yes. It's looking for that crib, but it's, it's not, it's not even that it's looking for the crib specifically. It's looking for, potential settings so it runs through aaa and it finds out that there is you know in the ninth uh position on this on this uh transition from the coded text to the clear text right there's a spot where it it encodes c to c okay and it can't do that because yep. of the reflector Got right it. yep reject it yep so now it starts it. running aab got it reject it mm-hmm. aac reject it it gets to aag yeah and it finds no contraindications. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that it is po- it Correct. is proper properly set. But it's, it, you note that one down. <laughs> you note that one down, and you try that one. Yeah. And instead of running through, I think this was late in the Enigma program where the Navy was using uh, up to eight routers okay. or eight rotors, sorry, um, and could use somewhere between ten and fourteen uh, on the on the. Uh, Plugboard? Yeah, the plugboard. Thank you. I think I saw at one point 150 trillion potential configurations of this thing. Yeah. Wow. You're just, it's a numbers game at that point. So if you do this, it's significantly cracking down on the number of ones because you're not getting those repeated mirrors. Yeah. So then you're going from trillions to maybe millions. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. And, and it actually works quite, quite quickly then. Mm-hmm. It, it It's to a point where you can have people on the manual machines actually just checking this stuff seeing if it's working because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it'll spit out uh, they, they've got they've got machines that'll actually spit out a, a, an output rather than uh looking at the numbers okay. or uh, at the at the at the lights sorry yeah. um at least later on and and they can just look at it and go well this is this is not, not clear text yeah. this is nothing reject yeah, that so you don't even have to read on. it just <laughs> yeah. look at whether it can be read yeah exactly um so rejecting things goes pretty quickly it's about actually hitting on the thing right uh that, that really counts by the end of the war there's nearly 200 of these bombas built and they kind of they're not all right at bletchley they're often at uh kind of other places you have like the bombing of decentralized yeah. Uh, yeah so they want to they want to spread them out as much as possible uh-huh. but yeah it, it became extremely effective at breaking these codes now it was best against the luftwaffe uh, the Air Force just tended to have more human errors. Oh, I see. They were just not as good at using it. And weirdly enough, Goering really enjoyed using the thing and would send just like very trivial... For no reason. <laughs> for absolutely no reason. Stuff that does not need to be encrypted at all. But he wanted it encrypted you know what as a as a kid who read a lot of like spy novels and stuff like that i get it <laughs> yeah no so do i it's just it's there's this why ever send non-encrypted messages again ah there's this weird thing that comes up with the like the top brass of the nazis where it's like they're simultaneously these, these extremely like evil human beings and also just kind of silly childlikely yeah it's 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 a weird little yeah uh, it's bizarre but anyways um yeah the the 
the answer to why not send lots of things in encrypted text mm-hmm. is the more you send, the more material yeah. that they have to work with. Right. And especially if they know that Goering likes to send messages and they know that Goering likes to send trivial messages and that he often starts his messages in similar ways, for uh-huh. example, yep. it makes cribs a little bit easier. It sure does, yes. So the more material they have to work with, the quicker that they can break it generally, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but patterns start showing up, right? You can run more things through the bomb. You can run more cribs against it and you have more chance of a crib hitting. Can I just back up like two steps? Sure. How are they coming up with these cribs? Like, How did they it know is... that these were common phrases unless they had to break that first? It's kind of intuition. Or just guess. Yeah, it's, it's very much an intuition. I mean, some of it is some of it is intuition. Some of it is good spy work. Some of it is the fact that um, they found out relatively early on that certain messages would be transmitted under different encryption protocols. Mm -hmm. Enigma isn't used for everything every day, right? It is a a top tier encryption. And there are lower tier encryptions that are breakable by hand. I see. And so they could find, they called it a kiss. A kiss is a message that is sent in two different encryptions. Mm -hmm exactly the same okay and if you got something that you suspected might be a kiss and it came through on a really easy encryption to break yeah you would run that crib against your enigma encryption and generally it would work out pretty well so you break something easier find out what these common phrases are Mm -hmm. and then apply them to the harder challenge a lot of these cribs are fairly common sense Mm -hmm. like the idea that nothing to report comes up a lot in military communications it's just that when i'm thinking like 40 weepy weepy i'm like okay how do we even come up with that phrase (laughs) but yeah that's that's from breaking lower encryption seeing that That it comes up really often it's also from breaking a few enigmas uh-huh. on you know getting lucky. you start with a couple of you start with a couple of lucky cribs and you realize like oh every day at just after midnight uh-huh. we get a bunch of messages that start with uh 40 weepy uh-huh. and it's like well let's try that next time yeah, yeah. and you get some hits and it's like great fantastic i see so the more you're breaking, the more data you're getting, which makes the next breaking easier. Yes, and they're constantly keeping track of all of this data. They're 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 archiving it. They're referring back to it mm-hmm. to try and make their breaking better. There's other little things that they get, you know, that they find out generally from uh, spycraft. Um, so they'll get bits and pieces of information from spies uh, in Germany, where, for example, they'll find out that you're not allowed uh, or no one's allowed to use the same uh, letter configuration on the rotors mm-hmm. twice in the same month. Okay. So you can immediately eliminate that once uh, you found yeah, it. Rule out something. Yep. Makes it's, sense. It's one, but mm-hmm. it's ruled out now. Or finding out that uh, rotors, when you get up to five rotors mm-hmm. and you have 60 possibilities, right. then the official protocol is to never use the same configuration twice in a month. Right. So if you've already had a month where 512 has been used, just never check it. So by the end of a month, you're down to like half the possibilities. Sure. Because 30 days is gone. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's useful. And and so a lot of that is coming to them, yeah, through through spycraft, through trial and error, through noticing patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's all these little it's all these little bits and pieces where it's not as much as we talk about this as like a you know a triumph of like computation and and all of this stuff a lot of it is just getting a little bit lucky and like learning to 
put yourself in the mindset of the people who are writing these messages. Well, it's being constantly proven or disproven too. So like if I go back to an example I made a lot earlier where you have like a logic problem with 18 rules that you don't know, mm -hmm. you know, maybe one or two to start off with, but mm -hmm. then by making a lucky assumption and being proven right, you suddenly know a third and that helps you come up with the fourth and fifth and then eventually learning more and more and it's snowballing. I see. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's, it's not easy. It's very hard work. Of course. Uh, Turing personally is put in charge of the department that is focused on the, the Kriegsmarine messages. So the, 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 the German Navy very much considered like the hardest assignment there. Mm -hmm. Um, the Navy was very strict about their protocols. They weren't having the same sort of weird mistakes that the, uh, that the air force was making things like that. If you worked in Hut 6, where they did the, the Air Force decryption, mm -hmm. generally you were expected to basically have the day's configuration by breakfast time. Oh, wow. And they regularly hit that. Whereas the uh, naval codes, they struggle with and struggle with and struggle with. The Navy ends up adding, they get up to eight router, uh, rotors by the end of the war which the possibilities yeah. are just through the roof at that point. Yeah. They also moved to a four router machine. I keep saying router. It's a rotor. Um, it's a four rotor machine. So it's, it's even more mm -hmm. potential paths through this. Uh, the, the rotors are set up. So not all of them move on every single keystroke. It gets very complex. That's actually known as the Lorenz cipher. It's, uh, it's introduced in 1941, uh, adopted by the top command. And that, immediately you see a drop in the number of messages per day that are being decrypted because wow. it's just harder and yeah, it's a yeah. different architecture and they don't have bombs built to deal with that specific problem. Mm -hmm. In October of 1941, Turing is one of a number of people at Bletchley Park that write directly to Churchill and basically go, we just need more resources. Right. We need to build more bombs. We need more people working on this stuff. We are hitting just a manpower wall here yeah they're being all paced right <laughs> and churchill is inspired by this program he loves it he wants and he basically writes to his ministers and says give them everything they need mm -hmm. and they start getting a lot of resources i mean compared to other things that are happening in the war effort they're not really all that expensive yeah, they're not building battleships <laughs> and compared to other things in the war effort they're returning really good information you can easily find lists of all the things out there that were minimized or uh, averted or uh, made more successful by intelligence that comes from Project Ultra. It's it's pretty easy. We're not going to sit here and go through yeah. examples, but there are very significant battles that are turned uh, based on information that is broken by this program. Mm -hmm. That being said, they have to be really careful about how they use this information because the German high command still believes the enigma to be unbreakable mm -hmm. in fact they're not even working on breaking type x mm -hmm. from the brits because they know it's based on enigma oh i see and they believe it to be unbreakable got it now they also never get their hands on a type x machine mm -hmm. which they do get enigma machines eventually and can you know reverse engineer some right, stuff right. from those machines type x's were big enough that generally if they thought they might be left behind mm -hmm. they would just go ahead and destroy them <laughs> Got it. Because they couldn't take them with them. Right, right. They want to be careful about how they use this info because if something is done that is like... It's obvious. ...very <laughs> clearly taken from their secret communications, mm -hmm. then they're just going to change everything and then you lose that window into it. 
So there's a lot of yeah they they can't let them know that they know <laughs> yeah and and they can't even let their own people know necessarily mm-hmm. uh how they know the things that they know they sometimes have yeah, to because just... then you get into making some hard decisions yeah the, the ramifications of this get very real for certain people in military intelligence do you allow u-boats to attack a, a specific ship right. if you have no plausible way of knowing other than broken codes broken this code that this attack is coming so you try to minimize but not oh that's rough these decisions are made all the time mm-hmm. you also get issue, er, instances where you have commanders who are given orders that they don't really necessarily understand why they would follow those orders i see because they can't be told about ultra mm-hmm. and they don't always necessarily do those things because they don't understand why they would be useful i saw an account of uh, uh an air force commander who's basically being told bomb oil refineries okay and he's going i've bombed all the oil refineries mm-hmm. like i'm just i'm just bouncing rubble at this point right like this is not this is not anything what he doesn't know is that they're getting significant chatter over enigma saying mm-hmm. like we're down to basically no oil refineries if they hit us any more on this it's going to cripple we're our done. war yeah. effort yep. just little things like that right they managed to decode, I think it was 70,000 character long, basically explanation by Rommel of all the defenses yeah. for D-Day. Say, this essay, this yeah. novel. <laughs> they distribute as a pamphlet to all their commanders. Wow. <laughs> and it is down to like, how wide are the gaps between the tank uh, uh, obstacles on the beach? How far yeah. in between pillboxes? Like it's it's incredibly granular, extremely de- uh, 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 detailed, and it's kind of like, okay, this is a lot of information. <laughs> Great, this is fantastic, and and that becomes really useful in planning D Day. But like again, we could we could spend all day talking about sure, all the yeah. very specific things. It is it is. I've seen people say that it shortened the war by as much as four years wow uh that is a that is an outside estimate yeah and this is also counterfactual history in that like you can't how do we know? really <laughs> know any of that stuff yeah. uh there's a lot of factors that come into play but it's undeniable that it had a very uh, uh positive impact for the allies in this war mm-hmm. once you get into this lorenz cipher something really interesting happens with which is that uh, another guy at Fleshley Park, uh, a man named Tommy Flowers, uh, starts working on what's known as the Colossus. Okay. This is often attributed to Turing. Uh, some of his work is really important for Colossus, but he did not build it. Flowers develops Colossus as what is very arguably the first programmable electronic digital computer. Colossus is this massive bank of machines that are based on vacuum tubes. Okay. Yep. Which are wired in to perform Boolean op- operations. And that basically means that it, it's all based on binary. It, uh, it, everything is either true or false. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, by building Boolean operators on top of each other, you can do very complex uh, things eventually. It just takes a lot of those operators. And Colossus is designed specifically to break the Lorenz cipher. But despite all of that, it is the first programmable electronic digital computer. Right. Now, it doesn't have stored programming. No. It doesn't have anything that you would consider RAM. Mm-hmm. But there it is, 1943, middle of the war. Oh. Nobody knows about it. Not a single soul outside of military intelligence knows about it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually pretty good at breaking Lorenz. 
it does a decent job. The the number of, of messages that are broken by Bletchley Park as a whole is is verging on uh, well over 100 messages a day at this point in the in the war, which is useful. significant. Yeah, they're getting some good stuff out of all of this. Turing himself ends up going to the United States in November of 1942 to help them develop their own bomb program, uh, working directly with the U.S. Navy. Um, he starts thinking a lot at this point in time about the issue of radio encryption and the fact that radio is not encrypted at all. It's all clear right. Morse code being sent, right? And that's kind of the heart of what's allowing them to break Enigma. And he's basically thinking, what would make it impossible for me to break Enigma? Yeah. And he actually starts working on a program called uh, Delilah, uh, which is true radio signal encryption. And he's like proving this to military uh, brass by taking a portion of like recorded portion of a, a Churchill speech from the radio, okay. encrypting it and then decrypting it on the other end and having come out as like a legible yeah. piece audio. of audio, yep. which is Crazy. really interesting <laughs> yeah. stuff. Now, unfortunately, Delilah is not ready in time to be practically useful in the war at all, mm -hmm. but he does spend the last couple of years of the war working on uh, this program. And then the war ends. And there's a kind of tricky question there, which is what do we do with Project Ultra? Mm -hmm. It's done, I guess. We did it. It was top secret. Yep. And this is one of those spots where you're kind of reminded that Britain in 1945 is at the end of several hundred years at the top of the geopolitical right. food chain and that things like winning a war honorably actually really mattered to them mm. a lot. Not only for like pride reasons, although there is pride reasons there. Right. There's also this issue of, at the risk of getting too far off topic, that this this idea that World War II comes out of um, this this angst among the German people about the ending of World War One, mm -hmm. and that it was sort of not fought to completion, and that the you know the Treaty of Versailles is unfair, and all of that stuff. Right, right. We we could talk, argue about that all day long, but there is that perception on the British side that there is, um, if the war is not seen as like cleanly won, a moral victory, <laughs> you could have this festering wound within Germany, and they're worried that if they find out that they won it not through like you know, grit and gumption and superior military. Right. If it's seen that it was won by, by trickery, yeah. uh, that that festering could continue there. Yeah, rile them up in some way. So they disband Ultra. Mm -hmm. They destroy most of the equipment that was involved. Uh, the rest of it is confiscated and kind of whisked away to a, a secret location. They keep about 50 bombs. Um Tommy Flowers is ordered directly to personally destroy all of his own notes on Ooh. Colossus, uh, as well as Colossus itself, uh -huh. um, which we talk about as though it's one computer. It's a bank of many right. computers, but they're all destroyed. All of the documentation is destroyed. And there's this weird problem that comes out of all of this, which is that you have some of the most experienced, knowledgeable computer scientists in a, in a field that is just being created. Yeah through the just force of will of this war effort that have nothing to put on the resumes. I was just going to say they have just 10-year gap on their resumes, if not more, and then they're just, okay, well, what have you been up to? And you have to, you have to start from fresh, basically, mm -hmm. because you can't show any of the stuff that you've done before. You need to start as if you're doing something out of whole cloth. A lot of them are kind of written off as like doing like 
clerk work during this war. Yeah. I mean, like they were there with the slide rule. <laughs> yeah, basically. I, I mean, you know, a, a lot of these women that worked on ultra go home to their families and, and their families have no idea that they contributed to this massive, like mm-hmm. important thing. They're under the impression that their uh, family members were, you know, essentially like typing up telegrams. Right. Just, just yeah, filing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, because they're not allowed to talk about it at all, right. which is understandable. But you know, you're in this weird position where, if you're Alan Turing, who is, you know, has published academic works on computer science. Disappeared for 10 years. <laughs> but is actually well established in the field. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the guys at the top give somebody else a wink and a nudge and he's all of a sudden got a job at the National Physical got Laboratory de- developing something called uh, ACE. It's an automatic computing engine. And he's got all these really great ideas of how it could work, mm-hmm. just basically out of nowhere. Uh, can't talk about where, you know, yeah, can't talk about, about any of that experience, but at least he's got a plausible reason for being there right. and for having these ideas. Then you've got somebody like Tommy Flowers who can't get a job at a computing firm to save his life, even though he is the mastermind behind Colossus. Yeah. Wow. Which is rough. Turing's work on on Ace, it's it's not it's not exactly milk and honey here. Like he's still struggling because he's got all these ideas where he's like telling people like, I know this is going to work. Just trust me on this. And yeah. they're going, but this is getting really Show expensive <laughs> though. And, and he's like, well, here's, here's, here's the work. And they're going, yeah, but now I have to build how many vacuum tubes. Yeah. I need this unlimited Churchill funding. <laughs> he highlights the fact that at this point in computing history, mm-hmm. the, the primary limitation of early computing is going to be memory capacity. How much, information can this machine store Mm -hmm. and then retrieve and work with and it's true because imagine i I mean ram is being stored in vacuum tubes right you're talking about ram on the order of bytes Mm -hmm. not kilobytes megabytes Mm -hmm. it's 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 nothing Mm -hmm. and and it's extremely limiting for them and and he's going like yeah the computational speed of these things it's not it's not even a processing issue they can they can wire processors that can handle more than what their memory can hold. Ace won't actually run until 1950. It takes five years for it to get up and running. Uh, he's actually given the uh, an OBE in 1946 for his work on Ultra, but it's completely unspecified as to why. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Order of the British Empire for I was anyone who's not. Ask. It, it's it's like uh, it's like one step below knighthood, basically. Got it. So yeah, I I mean he's going to keep working away on basically whatever he wants for this period uh the first actual contenders for like first stored program computer uh all come up in kind of 1947 1948 sort of thing there's a couple questionable ones as to whether or not they qualify like uh the ibm ssec because it's still kind of analog even though it can store programs it's kind of a weird hybrid thing but you get in 1948, you get uh, ENIAC, which is generally cons- considered the first stored program computer. Uh, it stands for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. Uh, you get uh, EDSAC. You get the Manchester Baby uh, at Man- University of Manchester. Um, all of these things finally start working with like computer memory. Mm-hmm. It's all the stuff that they've already been working towards with uh, stuff like Colossus, but never actually implemented uh, because it kind of ran out of time and because Colossus wasn't there to be a general purpose computer. That wasn't the goal uh, of Colossus, specific right? Purpose, yeah. yeah, exactly. But they're taking principles that were designed by these people at 
you know, not only Bletchley Park, but also in the, the intelligence programs in the United States, mm-hmm. things like that, and and applying them to these uh, general use yeah. uh, computers. While refining and all that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all, all of a sudden we have, you know, real computers. Uh, Turing ends up at the University of Manchester working with uh, Baby's uh, successor, a, a computer called the Manchester Mark One. He actually wrote the uh, programmer's manual for it. Oh, okay. uh, he, he worked on a, a bunch of different software for it. He actually spends time in this era uh, working with a, a former colleague that, you know, so, someone he went through uh, university with, uh, DG Champerdown, uh, working on a theoretical program. So no existing computer computers can run this yet but it's a it's a program for a chess computer oh yeah it's interesting how being able to play a game of chess is like a marker of like how intelligent a computer is even this early on and he would test this uh, this program out by hand running it Mm -hmm. he would sit there and calculate his way through the program uh each move would take about a half hour okay but he's sitting on a chessboard with a notepad (laughs) yeah and just running through all the decision loops like if this then this but if that then take this next step all these nested ifs and then eventually moving a knight (laughs) yeah exactly um i mean it uh it lost against some people Mm -hmm. but it managed to uh beat Champerdown's wife apparently Mm -hmm. um it had a range of success Uh, at one point you know much later because this is one of those things that computer scientists are absolutely going to love. Of course, this program is implemented on a computer that can actually run it, right? Right. And Gary Kasparov mm-hmm. had a chance to look at this. Deep Blue. And yeah, Deep Blue. He described it as running a recognizable game of chess. <laughs> but, but this I time mean, it's personal. <laughs> but but no, I mean that's a, that's a that's a absolutely a. It sounds that's high praise. It sounds damning with faint praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's high praise. But, but it is for something that's that's written at this point for a computer that doesn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, for him to say like, yeah, this is a reasonable situ- uh, simulation of a chess game, um, it's kind of amazing, actually. Anyways, by 1950 or 1951, he kind of starts losing interest in computation specifically. He actually starts working on what's known as mathematical biology. Okay. So he's curious about, you know, fractals and things like that. Mm-hmm. He is specifically looking at, uh, he, he publishes a paper called The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, which is basically examining how catalytic reactions on like a, a, a molecular level can result in uh, visually distinct and recognizable patterns like stripes or spots. Okay. Because it's one of those things that's like, well, randomness shouldn't, you know, account for all of this. And he's showing how like, yeah, actually that is a, a very real possibility. Um, that's the sort of thing that he works on for the last couple of years of his life. This is kind of the the famous part of the story to a certain extent, and we're gonna we're gonna bust some myths here. But in January of 1952, Turing's uh, uh, home is broken into, and a- as a course of the uh, the investigation, the police discover that the burglar is actually well known to a man named Arnold Murray, and. Also, as a course of this investigation, uh, Turing very freely and readily admits to the fact that uh, he has a sexual relationship with Arnold Murray. Mm -hmm. And the cops are like, but that's illegal, though. (laughs) You can't can't just tell us that. Like, we're not going to necessarily make a big deal of it. But you can't just say that and expect us to do nothing here. Both Murray and Turing are charged with a crime known as gross indecency this is uh, something that's been around since 1885 as a way to 
criminalize uh, homosexuality in Britain. Before that, there was, uh, you know, there were some more specific charges. This is basically a broadening of the police's ability to prosecute that mm-hmm. that crime. It's it's a weird act that it's put into uh, uh, into effect with as well. I, I guess not that weird if you're at all familiar with the way that society has treated homosexuality, but it's put into law basically as a one bullet point on a on a greater bill to protect uh children from sexual exploitation yeah which everyone can get behind is is yeah exactly but also it's like wait, wait, wait oh, hold on i'm not sure what <laughs> homosexuality has to do with that but anyways you, you know we're getting off course that's a whole topic in and of itself we don't have time for that today it's just it's not unusual is all i'm saying um anyways yeah they like they're brought to trial within like a month like it takes no time whatsoever and uh turing is he's never been terribly secretive about uh, his homosexuality throughout his life. He was actually engaged very briefly to a woman during the war in 1941. Uh, Joan Clark, a mathematician who worked uh, with him at HUD-8, one of the few people who's actually working on like the cryptography of the the thing and not just, you know, please punch all of these cards in the way I say you, uh, you must. Or I'm trying to remember if that's Kira Knightley. <laughs> it is absolutely Kira Knightley in that movie. And, um, but, but very shortly into their, their engagement, he basically told her, yeah, I don't think this is actually going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a gay man. And she basically said, no, it should still be okay. And he said, no, I don't think this is going to well, work. Actually, <laughs> I'm going to break it off. Um, it, it was a fairly short run thing. I, I, From everything I've heard about the movie, they make it into a bit more than it really was. As I recall, yeah. But anyways. No, this this uh, this trial is, is very quick. Uh, both Turing's brother and his lawyer recommend that he just enter a guilty plea, get it over with kind of thing. Again, this is the sort of thing that his position in life is supposed to protect him from if he just keeps his mouth shut about it. Uh, yep. And he just didn't. He was not shy about it. He told anybody about it. Mm-hmm. And so he just went ahead and entered the, the guilty plea and basically was given two choices, either imprisonment or what was known at the time as chemical castration. Uh, which was basically uh, he was forced to take estrogen for uh, a year, which uh, would render him impotent. And he chose that route. It was difficult for him, um, but I think a a, a bit more... This is one of those points where it's like there's a lot of conflicting evidence because a lot of people who knew him in this period actually noted how, how little they found that it affected him hmm. his general demeanor his mood things like that he just kept working yeah. um he was a little curious i mean he was very curious about biology at that point in time and it was kind of a in a certain way self-experimentation i mean it's not as though he was happy about anything that was going on but there, there, there it's, it's a more complex issue than just he became immediately depressed and and suicidal which is sort of how it gets told mm-hmm. potentially a bigger impact on his life is that um, I don't know about bigger, but definitely a different impact on his life was that he lost access to uh, all of his sweet government consulting jobs with uh, computer science. Blacklisted. Blacklisted. Uh, and and not quite for the reason that you would think. It's homophobic in a more roundabout way. Great. <laughs> Great. Uh, no, it's not It's not just because they, they discovered that he was gay. It was because, number one, he was convicted felon, which is a big problem for your security. That's what clearance. I figured it'd be. It's like, no, no, it's not because you're gay. Oh. Well, but also it is because yeah. he's gay because yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a big concern at this point in time that Soviet operatives would uh, be able to blackmail uh, homosexual, high-ranking wow. uh, 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 intelligence operatives. And, I mean, in the specific case of Turing, it's kind of like, well, 
I don't know if blackmail would work because he doesn't seem to shut up about it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like it's something he's hiding. No, he doesn't. He doesn't worry about it at all. Um, he's he, been convicted as a case of public record. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell everyone that you're you're a gay man. Okay. Yeah. I have I have been doing that also. Yeah, I have a judge's <laughs> statement here that says as much. That being said, keep in mind that from like the government's point of view, Turing has been working on the most sensitive project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, potentially the most sensitive project of the entire war. He knows mm-hmm. just everything. I wonder, like, this is the sort of thing that I think about, about, you know, he's convicted and of all this, he's punished for it. Mm. Was there no concern that he would become disenfranchised with his government? <sighs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, th- that's an interesting question. I'm, like I'm in not an era sure. where we're approaching, like, we're in Cold War, you know? Well, and I mean, Turing had a, had a habit of um, taking holidays in, like, Europe and, like, more eastern parts of Europe. I think there was a concern of of access. I don't think there was concern about Turing himself. I think that there was a concern that the Soviets would get to Turing. It would turn him. And and more just like, you know, get something out of him rather than like turn him into an operative. I see. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I mean, at that point, for the guy who knew that much about Ultra, it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. You don't want it either way. Right, of course. But he kept his work up with Manchester University on this biology project. Mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, they kept a close eye on him. I'm sure. I, I, I'm certain, yeah. On June 8th, 1954, uh, at the age of 41, Alan Turing is found dead by his housekeeper. At the time, uh, the cause of death is ruled a suicide. This, again, is a lot less simple than it's often made out to be when people talk about Turing. There's this very clear, straight line dra- uh, drawn between uh, his conviction of gross indecency uh, the chemical castration and and his death by suicide. There's more like three pom- prominent versions of the story of his death. Mm-hmm. Here's the first version. He's found dead. There's a half-eaten apple beside him. He is well known to have liked the fairy tale of Snow White. Okay. Uh, just he, he especially enjoyed the Disney movie. Uh, released in 1937. Mm-hmm. In fact, he uh, was noted to have had a fascination with like the apple dipping scene, which is visually stunning actually yeah, for the sure. time. Yeah, definitely. Um, but he he was fascinated by it, and and the uh, cause of death is ruled like there's this there's this story constructed around it where uh, you know he's been humiliated by his arrest and and conviction. Uh, he's feeling purposeless by his lack of work with the government. He feels abandoned by mm-hmm. his work with the government. Um, he's depressed due to the changes brought about by the estrogen that he basically uh, poisoned this apple with cyanide to like recreate Mm. Snow White in this I find kind of cliche flamboyant you know dramatic tableau yeah and and, you know that, that, that makes me cringe a little bit I'll be perfectly honest with you but that's kind of the story that gets written down on the coroner's report Here's the second story. There's something really interesting found in uh, the spare room of, of Turing's home. Uh, it's a setup for electroplating gold spoons, which is a process by which a very thin layer of a, a metal is, is, is coated on top of another metal. Mm-hmm. And what you use to dissolve gold in this process is uh, a chemical known as potassium cyanide. Mm-hmm. And there is this theory that 
actually, as we discussed before, he was in pretty good spirits at the time of his mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. He had taken his physical and legal challenges in stride. He was uh, making headway with his work at, uh, at the university. He had left a to-do list for uh, Monday when he got back into the office, which is not traditionally the kind of thing you would expect from someone who is uh, uh, planning suicide. And there is a very good chance that he was kind of careless about his storage of chemicals and managed to uh, inhale enough of this potassium cyanide, which does put off a a vapor uh, to poison himself potentially over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was well known to have eaten an apple every night before bed. And often he would half finish it and just kind of toss it to one side because he was a man with a housekeeper and you could do that sort of thing, I guess. Rad. I don't know. He was yes. living that that bougie, the opulent, yeah. apple eating life. <laughs> there was a theory for a long time that the uh, the apple on Apple computers with the bite out of it was a, an homage to Turing. Oh, that is not true. That's a cute theory. At one point, Steve Jobs uh, said that he wished that they had been that clever about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was a very well known thing about him. The whole thing was uh, you know there was no suicide note. It was all just kind of a weird coincidence. This mm. whole you know snow white reenactment thing is just a a, a bunch of nonsense now there are people who will say well you know actually it was suicide and he didn't leave a note and bought the setup for some plausible deniability to give his mother some peace after his death Mm. because she held on to this this theory that it was accidental because she didn't want to believe it was a suicide which is very understandable um little column a little column b yeah theory number three you have exactly what you were talking about before. You have a man who is potentially very bitter at his own government, knows a lot about it, mm-hmm. is taking all these holidays in Eastern Europe, is a very real liability. Mm-hmm. We could continue watching him for the rest of his life, or or we could alter what exactly the phrase rest of his life means. Wow. That's a fun term of phrase. Illuminati. There is there is very little <laughs> evidence for this, no. but the the conspiracy conspiracy theorists will absolutely run oh, off with that. It would be it would be it would be very convenient for certain people within military intelligence if uh, uh, for for Alan Turing to die when he did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of the three options that float around out there, and we don't really have a great uh, handle on any of those. I was wondering if I would be a conspiracy theory. I highly doubt it's assassination personally. <laughs> I, I tend towards the the accidental inhalation, but you know, there's there's not enough evidence to say one way or the other. The apple was never tested for cyanide, by the way. It was mm. just an assumption that was made. Yeah, I mean, which is a, I don't know why you would test that honestly. Well, I mean, if if the coroner is going to make the report saying that the man poisoned his own apple and then ate it and died from su- 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 right. uh, from uh, cyanide poisoning as a suicide, you'd think they'd double check the apple. Right. Yes, of course. That's what I mean. Like, it, <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you. I didn't realize you were being sarcastic. I apologize, Miller. I was like, "What are you talking about, idiot?" <laughs> sorry, man. Uh, we're getting close to the end here. Anyways. Yeah, no, it's 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 wild that they didn't test it. Absolutely, it's I don't know, whatever. Corners in the fifties, yeah, I guess. Just the fringes of society, I guess. I suppose. I wonder, like they just sort of, you know, yeah, he's dead. Do a lazy job on the coroner's report. I have no idea. You know, uh, I, I I really don't know. I kind of wish I did. You know, Ultra wouldn't be declassified until nineteen seventy four, so uh, Turing would never know a world in which his contributions to the war were uh, were recognized. Mm-hmm. The reasons behind that are a little unclear. We talked about some of the concerns about Germany, but, you know, also because Enigma was thought to never have been broken, a lot of 
less wealthy countries bought Enigma systems off of the Germans at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. And well, now we can spy on them. We mm -hmm. got the technology. Why not? Right. Yeah. They kept running Bombas up until the late 60s, I believe. Um, oh, okay. So until before it was declassified. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, by, by the 70s, computer-based encryption was becoming far more common. Not just like breaking it, but also encrypting it on the way out. Okay. So at that point, it's easy to say, hey, we did this 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you start getting you know people talking about their own contributions to the war and mm -hmm. being like okay guys it's time to talk right, about this. <laughs> there's this book that's written and all of this stuff mm -hmm. so yeah it's declassified in 1974 there are two papers by turing on his work on enigma decryption that won't be published until 2012 because the information in it uh, contained in them is so sensitive mm -hmm. which is really interesting on december 24th 2013 yes alan turing is retroactively pardoned for his conviction by the queen and uh, January 31st, 2017, that pardon, uh, that amnesty is uh, expanded to all men who were ever cautioned or convicted under uh, that law. Mm -hmm. This this retraction or this amnesty is known as the Alan Turing law. And uh, one count I saw showed as many as uh, 49,000 men who were uh, affected by those pardons. Wow. Many of whom were still alive because that law was on the books until the 60s. Mm -hmm. So it had a very real impact. It's all still so recent. It's it's very recent. You you run into stuff like that in history every once in a while, and it's like, yeah, come on, that's really <laughs> we got to be like that. I mean, laws, you know, laws are hard to change, and and uh, for a long time those things stand without really being enforced in any real way. Mm -hmm. But you know, it, it it is this whole you know, come on, guys, you had this you had this incredibly valuable person working for you and you threw them away over what you know yeah it's 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 really yeah yeah when, when we get back to the the you know the playing what if game i was just gonna say this is another one of what those if, uh, what if turing had lived in situations yeah, what if he had lived past 41 yeah um that's a lot of life left to do some really amazing things well, yeah like what would the world of personal computing look like now mm -hmm. if he had lived into the like 80s <laughs> yeah. well i mean every every computer that you work on now your laptop your phone those are all Turing complete machines. They're universal machines under mm -hmm. his definition. That is what they strive to do. Much of the architecture that we're working with is uh, theoretically uh, proposed by Turing at some point. I, I think. I think if Bletchley teaches us anything about, you know, great man theories of history, it teaches us that it's not all one person. It's actually a very complicated and uh, mm -hmm. uh, intensive thing. But there aren't many people as singular as Turing uh, in is in the development of computer science a very specific field mm -hmm. and uh you know well i we couldn't do any of this right now this talking right now without it yes hello there internet. um hello internet um yeah i i mean it's and and that's like a big easy one it's 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 all the little things that you think about that are, are possible because of those advancements mm -hmm. that that have sort of shaped our lives i mean you know the idea of uh you know the scientific calculator not really being small enough or, or affordable enough to become ubiquitous until like the late 70s right and even then costing over a hundred dollars mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. of you know today's money there's there's people still kind of working this stuff out by hand for a very long time anyways that's that's pretty much everything that i wanted to say about turing on my end there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about we could talk about you know the imitation game a little bit and mm -hmm. why biopics are a little bit tough for <laughs> people who get really into history i mean I, I again i haven't seen the movie 
everything I've read about it was, yeah, it's a really good movie. Here's all the things that are going to annoy you to no end if you actually know anything about Alan Turing. Yeah, it gets it gets tricky. I personally have not seen a biopic about someone that I am like a huge fan of and know mm-hmm. everything about, but like there's a lot to be said for like newer versions of things. Like I saw, yeah. I saw rocket man this summer. I heard rocket man was good. I heard really bad things about the Freddie Mercury one. Yes, exactly. Because I think that rocket man was supposed to be fantastical and not taken as a hundred percent historical. It was a musical. Yeah. And so it was fun and mm-hmm. not necessarily like you should take this as a biography. So like in, in, in the case of the invitation game, again, I have not seen it, but did a bunch of reading beforehand cause I knew it was going to come up. Mm-hmm. And like it, what, what struck me was some of the, some of the changes that did, didn't really necessarily need to make. I, I only remember half of this story, so maybe I shouldn't bother telling it, but uh, I believe in the movie, the first bomb that he builds for ultra in the movie, he names Christopher yeah i think so Something after like that. after uh his uh boyfriend from when he was uh when he was in school that's not what he named that computer and what's more there's not you know i get i get thematically oh, why sure. they would do that yeah i don't the hollywoodification <laughs> yeah it's just kind of also like come on <laughs> but we're supposed to be doing like the based on the true story thing yeah um and, and there's there's lots of other issues there's there's People will complain that the, the, the you know, his homosexuality is, is highlighted way too much. There's people who say that it's downplayed because of his relationship with uh, Keira Knightley in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, everybody's going to have feelings on that stuff. I, 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 I appreciate that. But in terms of like actual contributions to the Enigma project and, and that aspect, mm-hmm. everything that I've seen, it was kind of like, ah, I think I'm going to give this one a pass or, <laughs> you know, may, maybe I'll watch it at some point. But. Right before I did this topic was not the time to yeah, to revisit no. that movie. I might revisit it now, honestly, mm-hmm. and just see if what jives and what doesn't jive with uh, what you've taught me here today. Right. Yeah, and then and then there's lots of other stuff like people love talking about Turing personally. And it's like, oh, this you know he's such an eccentric guy. But a lot of things I hear is kind of like, you know, he kind of sounds like any other professor, honestly. Yeah. Uh, you'll hear stuff about him like. Uh, People kept stealing his mug, so he changed his, chained his mug to his radiator in his <laughs> in his office, so people would, would stop stealing his mug. And it's like, oh, that crazy tearing. It's like, what no, man's just, man's just fed up. Yeah, honestly, I think that a lot of the, and I'm not sure how much of this was in the movie, mm-hmm. but I wonder if they're just like, hey, Benedict Cumberbatch, he sure is a Sherlock, huh? Um, yeah, I <laughs> let's, think let's, let's make him wacky and eccentric. I think there's a certain aspect of that. I, he he did have like a reputation, you know, like other stuff. It's it's kind of like presented as wacky and i hear it and it's like that sounds like a great idea he had really bad hay fever mm-hmm. so he would bike to the office wearing a gas mask yeah which is like yeah that'd do yeah, that makes sense <laughs> sure perfect uh he was an incredibly accomplished long distance runner he would occasionally run from bletchley park to london for meetings wow something like 40 miles no but like he tried out for the he tried out for the olympic team he only didn't make it because of a, an injury at the time of qualifications wow. um his he, he could consistently run at a like his his personal best would have qualified him for a silver medal at those olympics wow um yeah you know i i another criticism of the movie i've heard and again i haven't seen it so i can't really speak to it is that he's uh presented if not explicitly then then fairly strongly hinted at uh the fact that he he might be uh somewhere on the uh the autism spectrum yeah which uh, i have again seen really mixed uh information on in terms of like the actual 
uh, personality of it. Some of the stuff I've seen uh, seems like a big stretch. And uh, in, in, in general, I tend to really avoid diagnosing historical figures, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. um, for, for, for a number of different reasons. But it's it's generally poor practice. It's, again, something that's interesting to talk about over a couple of beers with some friends. Yeah, but, but ultimately, it kind poor, of amounts to nothing. <laughs> uh, poor, poor historical practice. But anyways, uh, yeah, overall, really, though, a, a very, very inspiring person. And, and the the amount of what if that's inspired by his life is just just there, there's very few people that that uh, get you talking the way that he does. Mm. Uh, and I've always really, really appreciate that. Um, one more thing that I thought I would mention, I, I found uh, I'm not sure how many uh, apps for smartphones that replicate the enigma machine oh yeah so i would highly recommend just taking a poke around i'm not going to recommend any specific one you can very easily send enigma style encoded messages most of them have like a copy paste function you can send them through chat i would recommend playing with one after this uh, episode just to get a sense of what they're kind of like because seeing one operate gives a much better sense i think than just listening to me prattle on about <laughs> routers or rotors or whatever they're called yeah, it's interesting stuff. That'd I think cool. there's yeah. an aspect of code breaking that's a little bit romanticized now. Oh, 100%. it's funny how, how how far it's come from this like shameful like hidden uh, secret of World War II that no one needs to find out about. Code breaking is uh, it's cool now. Yeah. Anyways, uh, anything else you wanted to add or? I'm good, man. You're good. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm so glad we did this topic today. I was really excited to do it. Absolutely, and, uh, great to be back. Glad to have you here. So we'll have to do it again soon. Yep. There's something romantic about spycraft in the Second World War. It feels sophisticated in a way that earlier efforts did not, and it feels heroic in a way that Cold War espionage would lose. Turing's story of genius, triumph, and ultimately persecution, along with a mysterious death, ties into the narrative of Ultra in a way that makes him a uniquely fascinating person in history. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, uh, in this episode, I talked about calculating ballistics for the Battle of Midway, even though it turns out that battle was fought almost entirely with aircraft-delivered ordnance. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.